Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Today, we had an opportunity to speak with Eric Klein, who works at the Georgia Tech Research Institute. He has over three decades of experience in the airline industry and is an expert in aircraft maintenance. The objective of today's podcast is for you to understand how Delta maintenance can complement Air Force maintenance. There's a lot we can learn from our industry partners. Those key results are going to look like what Eric Klein's career looked like over the last three decades. Another key result is you're going to understand how the theory of constraints can benefit your maintenance operation. And we'll also talk about the importance of trust building and reaching out to your end user to understand how you can make your operation more efficient. All right, here we go. Eric, thank you for joining us today on on Tesseract Podcast. It is a pleasure uh, to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. This is an exciting opportunity to talk about Tesseract and how it all evolved. Uh, thank you for you know repping you know our T-shirt there, our brand. Really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so, how long have you been uh, working with Tesseract? Uh, I actually started with Tesseract back in t- 2018. Oh wow, 2018 okay. when when the whole idea was originally developed when Dr. Roper came to Delta Airlines and said, how did Delta Airlines cancel their maintenance cancellations? Mm-hmm. So in 2010, Delta had 2000, or excuse me, 2010, Delta had 5,647 cancellations to our flying schedule directly due to maintenance issues, 5,600. Mm-hmm. In 2018, Delta had 55. That's a 99% increase. And Dr. Roper came in. He said, this is amazing. We want the black box. We want the one thing that you did that we can plug right into the Air Force and make our maintenance cancellations go away. And that's how it started. Now, well, now let's take some steps even before that, because that is, th- those are amazing results. So where did your career start? You know, because you have decades of experience in, in the airline industry. How, yeah, I, how did all that build up? Yeah, so a friend of mine said aviation was my passion going to aviation. So I started at Delta Airlines in 1989 as a temporary part-time baggage handler loading airplanes. The same time I went to school full-time. So I was a full-time employee and I worked for full, full-time uh, at the school, getting a degree in electronics, received my airframe and power plant license, moved over to maintenance, worked on international line maintenance as a mechanic, worked into uh, avionics department, where we worked for light line avionics systems, uh, got into the avionics department, started to work there. They saw that I had some potential with business development and process improvement. That's kind of my background uh, and what I love to do as well. So I was improving things as we worked through uh, the airline processes and moving my way up through the ranks. When I became a Georgia Tech Research Institute employee on April of 2020, My last position at Delta was general manager of hangar maintenance planning. So we planned all the maintenance events for all the airplanes around the world. At the time, Delta was flying about a thousand airplanes. 
So we would plan that against 53 maintenance stations to make sure the maintenance was done in a timely manner and how uh, we can do that without affecting the flying operation. And that's where the canceling maintenance cancellations came from is everybody was working toward one goal in that process of making sure the airplane met the flight schedule, get the airplane to the gate on time. So it, would you it's really a, a cultural shift. And we'll, we'll dig into the, the cultural aspect of it as well in the shift and not, not uh, solely the, the technical aspects of the change. Cause there's certainly, you know, both of those, you know, play into canceling those cancellations to the extreme that, that you did it. Um, just curious with the thousand aircraft, is that the, was that the entire fleet of yeah, aircraft? The, the entire mainline fleet. So not the, um, DC carriers, uh, like the um, regional carriers, but just the mainline fleet was almost a thousand airplanes. Gotcha. And how many different types of airframes? So there were 14 different aircraft models and 43 different configurations within those 14 models. So for instance, the 757 S model, we called it was the sleeper model. They, that was 10 airplanes that had sleeper first class seats. You put those on the long flights like LA to New York, where people will pay a lot of money to sleep in first class. You don't want to put a 757 with a sleeper seat from Atlanta to Orlando. That's just a waste of time because no one's going to sleep in that short flight. So mm -hmm. we had to manage the flight schedule around the different configurations of airplanes. Mm -hmm. And now as we start to talk about the technical piece first as to, uh, how you canceled those cancellations. I'd like to hear your definition of innovation. <laughs> I have a one word definition for innovation. It's called focus. So whenever you talk a theory of constraints, people, the one word they always bring up is focus and focusing on the problem. And as a PMP, um, one of the things with Six Sigma as well is so Six Sigma is one defect out of a million uh, opportunities, if you will. And as you get to Six Sigma, which is one defect, you're working your way up. Just focusing on a problem will increase your Sigma rating by one and a half, which is statistically um, significant. So focusing on a problem without changing a thing is going to increase its processability, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's innovation is just focusing on it. What would you say, because I, I like how you brought up, you know, your PMP experience. I'm a PMP too, uh, working on my Six Sigma as well. And then you also mentioned TOC all in the same breath. How, how does Six Sigma, I think people hear process improvement initiatives and they, they think that Six Sigma is one option and then toc is another option and like cpi and um kaizen or all these different they, they hear all these different words or these different phrases and different uh types of initiatives but specifically how do you balance toc and six sigma and like how do you how do they complement each other from your experience uh, it, it's all coming out of the same thing but they're different philosophies they're different focus points Six Sigma really focuses on the current process and how to make it more efficient using 5S and things like that. Um, 
how can I remove waste, the eight forms of waste, from this process? Theory of constraints is all about throughput. It's all about maximizing how much you can get through a system, which is a little bit different. Um, so you think of a restaurant. Restaurants want to turn tables. And throughput is a theory of constraint. What is the thing that's stopping me from turning this table faster? Where Six Sigma says, where are the forms of waste in transportation of the food from the kitchen to the person or uh, in waste in um, motion of the waiter moving back and forth? So there are different ways to improve a process. Mm -hmm. Does that explain that well? Oh, 100%. I like how you made that a very real example, uh, you know, because... I think everyone has had that experience before and they can, and they can visualize it. So I thought that was perfect. Um, now let's dig deeper into how Delta canceled those cancellations and some of those, uh, you know, tactical level, you know, details in the hangar with the Delta maintainers. Um, what was implemented to, to start that initiative and to regain that focus as you, as you say, so what I like to say is we, we focused on the fundamentals. What is the basic black blocking and tackling that's needed in order to accomplish a maintenance task? So at Delta Airlines, we came up with a, um, the first philosophy was the first thing we need is to have the maintenance tasks listed and independently tracked. The smallest type of maintenance task possible. So how can we track that one individual task to make sure it can get completed? Well, it starts with, in our world, the paperwork. The paperwork is what everyone works off of. And we had maintainers within Delta Airlines who had years of experience, but we also had brand new people. And how do you bring the brand new people up in following the steps of the paperwork without doing something outside of the compliance issues? a lot of on the job training, but the first thing we focused on was the actual fundamental paperwork. And, and that's where everything started to key off. We started to realize whenever a main maintainer is working on an aircraft, we want to keep their hands on the airplane. We don't want them burdened with administrative functions. So we called it administrative burden to the front line. While they're doing that paperwork in their maintenance task, what is pulling them away from that? how to fix the administrative burden. Why is he moving away to go get a tool? Why is he moving away to go get a part? Why is he moving away to get more reference information because his technical data isn't good enough? So we fix that in the paperwork by putting the tooling and the parts in the paperwork itself and making it the source of truth, we called it. The single source of truth. Everything comes off of that paperwork. And that's how it, it, it evolved into where we are today, where the paperwork contains the parts that are needed, the material, uh, uh, parts and material that are needed, the tooling that's needed, the aircraft you're going to be working, the location of where that aircraft is going to be, the number of people you need, plus their certification levels. If it's an avionics skill, if it's an aircraft skill, if it's a sheet metal skill, if it's an engine skill, a hydraulic skill. Uh, and we took all that plus the time that's needed to do the work, ground time, and put it all into the paperwork as a single source. Now everyone's looking at one source of information and they don't have to go look all over the place for everything. 
And it's all right there where the frontline maintainer sees it. And then the other piece that we did that was really significant was we put a feedback loop. We actually put a 1-800 number on that TO. You got a problem with anything in this maintenance document, call this number, leave a message, we'll get to it. And we had a mandated response time of 72 hours that the person who received that information had to respond back to the frontline maintainer and say, this is how we're going to handle your situation. It's either a grammatical error that we can fix quickly, a flow error in the card we can fix quickly. It's an engineering issue that we need to run through the process and get an engineer to look at it and get it updated. Or you didn't understand the process correctly. Let me, let's help you understand the process. It's one of those three responses. But the feedback loop was key because every time that work card is being worked, that work card is actually being audited by the person who knows exactly what work is supposed to be done. And every time it's audited, it should get better. So the goal that we had in our group was let's make it 1% better a day. Anything you touch, make it 1% better a day. Boy Scout model, leave it better than you found it. And those are the small fundamental steps we made as we started to make these changes. So talking about that feedback loop, I think that's, uh, to your point, key to understanding where the maintainers are coming from, where peop where your people are coming from, and the, the issues that they're experiencing, getting that end user feedback. Who would, I'm just curious, who, who equipped those lines, like those, those phone lines? Was it a maintainer that had experience already working on the aircraft? Or was it um, simply just someone assigned to receive the information that had no maintenance background? Or was it someone who had that context? Or was it like supervisors, uh, managers? How would that work? So we created a brand new department at Delta Airlines uh, called the Work Instruction Standards Group, which was WISIG. So the WISIG group, they were made up of former maintainers who came up into this one area as administrative maintainers now. They're the ones who wrote the instructions to make sure they were could be interpreted by a maintainer. And they're the ones who fielded the questions from the front line. So during the day, normal operating hours, it was usually a live person that answered, but off hours, it was a voicemail. And they just, one person went to the voicemail account, picked it up, got the message and sent it to the correct person for mitigation. That was the key, was putting one person or two people in this case in charge of man managing that. When you put a group of 50 people in charge of that, no one's responsible. So we had two people who were supposed to listen to the voicemails and distribute those appropriately every morning. And this WISIG group, we started out with 14 individuals. We had 125,000 work cards in the system. And 125,000 work cards takes a little bit of time to go through. These 14 went through each individual one, one by one, to make sure the material was there, the tooling was there, the people, the skill level, all that was listed in that one document. Wow. That took five years just by itself. Wow. Uh, so looking at just the, like Delta started, I mean, how many decades ago? When was Delta founded? Uh, originally founded in 1929. So... 1929 you're talking about decades of 
failures, right? As to, you know, everyone, ex- you know, experiences iterations. I, I say failure in a positive sense as to like, you, you learn, you grow, you learn, you grow, you learn, you grow. And then now you finally made it to this point where you are able to eliminate 99% of cancellations. The culture had to, let's dig, start digging into the, the cultural aspect of this because um, that, that feed, you know, just that one element of getting feedback from the end user, I mean, that, that involves a huge cultural shift. What do you think that, or that, that line in the sand was drawn with the, uh, with the shareholders, with the executives as to saying, hey, this, this is a problem. We are known for our cancellations. We are known for these issues. This is costing us money. Uh, we are um, inadvertently, or I should say directly, impacting people's lives and what should be positive parts of someone's life is like going, like, hey, going on vacation, right? You know, someone wanted to, you know, uh, go to, I think I heard you mention one time, go to Disney World. And now, now, uh, you know, Johnny and Susie can't go to Disney World um, because we were responsible for making them miss their flight. Um, how, how did Delta make that shift and cross that, that line in the sand to um, over decades of an inculcated culture how did you overcome that well that was our overall leadership so when we got richard anderson in as a ceo he went back to the original ceo of delta airlines which is mr woolman mr mr woolman always said there's a two percent difference of being mediocre and being a success and that two percent difference is understanding what the customer wants what's on the other side of the counter so going back to my restaurant when you go to a maitre d' of a restaurant and you say, I would like a table and the maitre d' says, okay, we'll have a table for you in 35 minutes. You've made a written or a, a, a verbal contract with that restaurant that that table will be there in 35 minutes. Now, what happens if that table's not there in 35 minutes? Not a good day. Not a good day. You're upset. <laughs> well, think yeah. of an airline. An airline is saying, I want to go see grandma for Thanksgiving. I'm going to buy my ticket six months in advance. I am giving you the airline my money right now for the promise of a ticket to go to see grandma and Thanksgiving. What happens when that airplane's not ready when you are? Not a good holiday. Not a good holiday. And you already spent the money. Mm-hmm. It's gone. So everyone started to think in that concept of, what is the customer feeling? Where's the pain there? So maintenance is not there to perform maintenance in an efficient manner. That's one of the goals, yes, but it, that's not the purpose. The Air Force isn't there to maintain airplanes. The Air Force is there to fly missions. Delta Airlines was there to fly revenue passengers from one point A to point B. Maintenance their job is to support the operation and give the airplane when it's supposed to be given. And that was the key, the mind shift that everybody went through. So in 2006, Delta Airlines went bankrupt. And we talked to some of the back shop people and they, I can't believe we went bankrupt for 25 years. I've worked at Delta Airlines and we've always done exactly what we're supposed to. Our shop was producing 100 widgets a month, 100 widgets a month. Do you believe it? We're doing great. We look at them and say, yeah, but the operation only needed four. (laughs) 
we had to get extra warehouse space to put your widgets because you were making too many. And that's an extra cost. So that's where everyone started to shift their focus. What does the operation need? Where's the demand? And, and in that change, everyone started to see, how do I get that airplane to make its flight? Well, Tyler only needs one widget. Well, I'll make sure one widget's available on the shelf and that's all I'm gonna produce. Now I'll go do something more productive. Making that shift was key to supporting the operation. How is that context built? How is that, you know, because it sounds like from what you're saying, there was a very tactical level perspective as to, okay, I need to be, you know, from a, uh, like, I need to create these widgets. And it's it seems like that was very direct, a direct line of thinking as to this is my job, I need to accomplish my job versus now, this is for the betterment of the entire organization and not just the organization, but our customers and our shareholders. How was that shift really, what got that going? Was it the the rhetoric of the leadership? Was it uh, what type of, like, whether it was communication, how is that supported by management and how is that driven? Uh, I, I believe it was driven through leadership engagement as to focusing on the correct things and not just maintaining that I have a mechanic here. I want to make sure he's busy eight hours a day to, I have a mechanic here and he's ready when an airplane has a problem to, and, and the other one is metrics. Metrics was key. So Delta used to use what's called technical dispatch reliability and mechanical dispatch reliability, which is equivalent to AA and MC in the air force. Those metrics tell you exactly what happened yesterday. They don't tell you anything about what's going to happen tomorrow. So Delta had to shift its metrics into how can I see what's happening tomorrow? And by doing that, everyone's focusing on how can I make my flight tomorrow? Uh, and that was kind of a mind shift was the metrics and, and the leadership cover as well. Without that, you're never going to get anywhere. Phenomenal. That is good stuff. You know, predictive maintenance. You know, you would think that that would be a given just in the looking at, you know, the airlines in general, air, aircraft operations in general, like you, you'd think you'd like to know when your aircraft is going to be ready or like when an aircraft is going to break down or what parts you need. And just having a perspective of that, if, uh, interesting to see that uh, Delta has cracked that code and no. are getting at least closer to cracking the code um, to be more efficient in, in how they conduct their operations. So there's an article in Aviation Week that just came out that said the airlines, less than 5% of the airlines use predictive and prognostic systems. Really? Probably true. Everyone's falling right back on the MSG, which is maintenance steering group philosophies, and expecting that to carry them through without focusing on how I can improve that process. But Delta hasn't cracked the code significantly. We only started at Delta Airlines doing predictive and prognostics in 2016. We started the fundamental piece in 2010. You have to have the fundamentals done first. And so whenever we scheduled in the planning group, a work construction card, a work card, a TO against an aircraft tail number, the system saw that maintenance being scheduled against that tail number. It now knows the parts, the people, the place, the plane, the tools, the time, everything it needs to support 
that and the system can say material group do you have those parts available tooling group do you have that tooling available uh, frontline managers do you have the people available and x and synchronize the execution point so that when it's scheduled everybody's there ready to go like a nascar pit crew i keep saying that because a nascar pit crew they actually plan on 11.5 seconds for a pit stop in 11.5 seconds you get a full tank of gas four new tires and a clean windshield because everybody knows exactly what to do and when to do it and how to do it mm -hmm. imagine a turn on an air force airplane getting new tires full tank of gas clean windshield and even if it's two minutes it would be a lot quicker and than, yeah uh, oh 100 percent well I wish I can fix a jet in 11, 11 and a half seconds, you know? <laughs> um, so I think that's a perfect segue into, um, I'm looking down here. I got a book down here. So the 2% difference, don't know if you can see it. It's 212 degrees. I don't have that one on my bookshelf, so I'll have to add it. Okay. It's called uh, one extra degree. And this is just a bunch of stories that says, you know, water boils at a, at 110 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, wait a minute. 200, 212 degrees is the, I think, I think that's boiling point, I want to say. Or, or is it 213 degrees is boiling point? I think it's 210. Two. Let's see. By using the principles led by the 210 example. Well, we it, it's a that. Google search away. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, yeah. it's a bunch of stories about one extra degree one extra percent, how that changes things. Uh, and and that's a, it's a pretty interesting book to get in, into that mindset. Wonderful. Well, I have that written down in my notes and I am going to add that to the bookshelf. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, wonderful segue into uh, talking about the Air Force and Delta and how they are more similar than they are, you know, they, they're perceived as drastically different, but I think they have more similarities than people give it credit for. Um, you know, look at, you know, someone might say, well, a 757 is not as old as a B-52. I, I mean, I was working on B-52s. That's, a, I mean, that is an old airframe, right? Um, you know, oh, you can hire and fire whoever you want in the, in the, in the private sector. You know, at Delta, you can do that all you want. In the Air Force, you can't do that. Um, you have the money is not a constraint perceived, right? You know, um, there, there are a lot of, uh, talking points as to how people pick apart the differences between the air force maintenance and, uh, airline maintenance. How do you, how do you pick that apart? I mean, how are, how are the airlines and the air force similar? And that's where I come with my background saying maintenance is maintenance is maintenance. doesn't matter if you're working on an F-16, a B-52, or a 767, or a 777. The maintenance tasks that you do all are generated from the OEM that created the aircraft. And they say you have to com complete this maintenance in these intervals. It's how you coordinate and schedule those intervals and then teach the people doing those intervals how to do them. So yes, we have bad maintainers at Delta Airlines. 
but they're not bad for long because we want to train them up. No one wants to be a failure. No one enters this world saying, I'm going to go out there and fail today. Everybody wants to be a success. And if they're lacking in something, you need to train them up so they don't lack in that anymore. It, it Complaining about maintainers not being good without giving the resources to make them better is it's a, a terrible thing. It's, it's very wasteful. You, you have these people, you have to work with these people, just like we do at Delta. Yes, we can fire them. And there's three things that they fire people for. Number one is stealing. Number one is lying, or number two is lying. And number three is fighting. If you did one of those three things, you're fired on the spot without even thinking about it. Other than that, they want to work with you to try to make you better. Or some people don't fit in a certain spot. Well, if they don't fit, put them in a spot where they fit. Uh, move them into another position. One of the issues that I have seen from an outsider with the Air Force is the only way to get a promotion is to move into an area that's outside of, uh, like for instance, I was getting a CAC card while I started with GTRI. I go to Dobbins Air Force Base, which is an air reserve base here outside of Atlanta. And at Dobbins, I'm working with the customer service agent in the CAC card office to get my CAC card all set up. And, and while I'm talking to her, I'm, I'm telling her, you know, we're in the maintenance group and we're doing stuff with Georgia Tech associated to the Air Force with maintenance. And she goes, I was a hydraulics mechanic. I loved being a hydraulics mechanic, but I had to get out of that job to come here at customer service in order to get my promotion. That's something the Air Force needs to work on. Um, that's bigger than us. That's bigger than our job, but it's something that you need to work on. At Delta, we had a maintainer who would be a maintainer for 30, 40 years because that's what they love to do. They didn't have to move anywhere else to get a promotion. They stayed there. That was their role. We used to say in Las Vegas, Nevada, you had to have 43 years of service with Delta Airlines before you could hold day shift. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's absurd. <laughs> Stay there forever. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of I want to dig into you talked about training. You talked about educating you know, your maintainers with the with the time that, that you had. And I think to connect some dots here. I think you have that time because of the application of the theory of constraints and it, you're not focusing on turning wrenches as much as you are, um, you know, being, you know, making sure your uh, maintainers are available to work on those jets in between that time frame, uh, it, it looks like you have that opportunity, you know, to train your people, to invest in your people and to give them more and to, and that gives them uh, job satisfaction and that context that they need in order to have that strategic level picture as to, okay, our mission is to um, have our flights depart on schedule. Um, is that assumption correct or what am I missing there? No, that the assumption is correct. And by providing everything you need for supportability of maintenance task, you're actually allowing the, air, the maintainer to have a little bit extra time to do things like training but we didn't really concentrate on training in a classroom while that was available. The biggest training was the lead mechanic or the seven level teaching the mechanics under him that he's responsible for usually six to eight people, which would, I guess, be the fives or threes. Um, 
taking time out of the day and saying, hey, this is how you do this. This is this what you need to look for. And just having that ownership of the people to make them better. So when they move up, that they'll be able to teach those people. Wonderful. And the on-the-job training was more important and, and uh, had better response than classroom training. Mm-hmm. Naturally, especially when you have people working in that in that career field, they're hands-on learners. Uh, you know, if people don't, you know, want to be a maintainer to to sit at a desk. Uh, they they, they want to be a maintainer to you know to fix jets, get their hands dirty, um, be out and about. So that makes sense. You know, I, I personally enjoy on-the-job training. Um, you know, and, and getting that that practical application as well. So I can relate. And it comes to having the passion for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love aviation. And I remember one of the first jobs I had, this is not going to sound great, but on a 727, we, they had some rats that were on the plane and they had found the rats and they killed the rats, but the rats had a huge, huge nest that we had to clean out. And they said, Eric, go up there and clean that nest out. I, okay. I got up in there. I climbed into this back little hole up above the laboratory tank and started cleaning up this nest, just smiling and singing away. And everybody's looking at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm working on a plane. <laughs> I, I, the, the feeling is, you know, that is a mutual. I, I have that same passion when my dad, when he was in the air force, he flew KC-135s uh, for eight years. And he, he was in SAC primarily refueled B-52s and, when I had an opportunity to work on B-52s, uh, I mean, it didn't matter what it was. I was excited to go touch the jet. You know, I was excited to, um, that was history, right? And I, I had that that connection and that passion. I love I love aviation as well. Just at, it is, I am an aviation enthusiast. I'd love to get my pilot's license one day. Uh, that, that'll come with time, but. Uh, well, everybody knows the Wright brothers who started aviation, but do you know the mechanic that actually built the airplane and the engines for the Wright brothers? Ooh, you know, I, I, I know the sister played a huge role in, in all of it, but I forgot the the mechanics, the mechanics name, one mechanic, his name was Charles Taylor and Charles Taylor is on the back of the AMP license. And there's also a Charles Taylor award that the FAA issues for people who've or superior mechanics, what they call master mechanics. But Charles Taylor had such a passion for aviation. The Wright brothers had specifications for their aircraft engine. They sent it to six manufacturing companies. All six of them said, this is an impossible engine to build. They gave it to Charles Taylor, who was a mechanic in their bicycle shop. He built it in six weeks with a lathe and a chisel. Wow. Uh, And it actually exceeded the horsepower requirement and had lower weight requirement. And the engine ran perfectly. So this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. You have to have the passion to do it right the first time and focus on every step. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to these types of jobs, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of commitment, both in this, you know, in the private sector, you know, and in the military. It it takes a lot to build the skill set. There's a a big dedication to it. Uh, Looking particularly at the at the military. You know, you go, not only do you have to go through tech school, uh, but before that you go through, you know, you have to, you know, commit to going to boot camp. And there's, there's a lot of, or, you know, basic military training, BMT in the air force, as they call it. 
Um, there's a lot of, you know, commitment to that. And a, a lot of that passion is there, but sometimes yeah, I'm sure you see it in the, um, in the airlines as well. You know, sometimes it fizzles out, you know, sometimes they lose that passion because they lose that, that context. Uh, I think that's natural really in any, any career field, any job, any profession, uh, you can start seeing people maybe lose that fire. How do you, how do you maintain that fire as, as a, you particularly as a leader, someone taking a maintenance organization, how do you keep people engaged? Well, so when I left Delta, like I said, I was the general manager of planning. Um, I also worked with the work card group in the engineering department that did the work cards, wrote the instructions. I ma I mandated that everyone in the group had to spend two weeks in the field with a frontline maintainer to see their pain, to understand their pain so that when they went back to the desk, they can go, I worked with Johnny for two weeks and this is the problem he always had. I'm going to fix that for him. And they made a personal connection. That was something that I required in my groups. Um, I think it helped. So you had maintenance experience. Like you, you I mean, you were working on jets. You were, you were taking rat's nests out of 727s. You know, your, your peers in management, was that not a prerequisite or did they get, did they get initially hired into, uh, into management and, and you went, uh, you know, you started from the ground up or like, so how did that work out? Yeah, the, the management within the maintenance organization is a requirement gotcha. to have an AMP license. That's an FAA mandate as well. Mm -hmm. Engineers don't have to have AMP or frontline experience. They just need to have engineering degrees. Gotcha. So having the engineer go out to see the frontline pain was very important as well. Cool. Um, I mean, that that's so important. Um, any, I, I think you, you lose that, that context from what it's like to be that end user, what it's like to be that maintainer. And you don't know those, those frustrations. And you, uh, I was even uh, talking about this with a teacher the other day where they see the same thing in, in their industry. And it's, that's totally different than, than turning a, you know, turning a wrench. So wonderful that that is something that you focused on and implemented, actually implemented two weeks. Cause some people can say, Oh, you know, I was a maintainer for a day or I went, I, I, I walked around the shop and uh, went through the facility for a day and I asked the questions I needed to ask. And then I left back to my desk. No, no, like put on, put on your jumpsuit, uh, you know, grab the tools and let's get down to business here. And let, like, let's learn what those pain points are so you could immerse yourself um, into their culture while it's, you know, the subculture of, uh, you know, of the airline as a maintainer, because it's, it's totally, you know, it's a totally different world. And, and that removed silos that became no more of, well, they are doing this to me. No, they are you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not, it's not you are failing. It's we are failing. Um, two other stories real quick. I'll put in there. Oh, one go is, for it. I, yeah. I remember once I was working the flight line and, uh, there was a toilet problem. So, the toilets on the airlines now are electronic. They have an electronic mind. You hit the switch, it hits an electronic switch that goes to the solenoid that dumps six, inches, six ounces of water into the bowl. And then it uses suction to pull out the contents into the waste container. And so I was working it as an avionics mechanic, working the electronic system. I'm laying on my back, fixing the, the sensors underneath and the flight attendants there watching. And my lead mechanic walks over and says, hey, Eric, when you get done with that, there's an autopilot on the 777 next door that needs work. And, and he go, okay, got it, boss. And 
he leaves and the flight attendant looks at me and says, you're working on a toilet. You know about autopilots? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know about everything. That's the, uh, that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> and the other story is everyone says that the airlines don't have old airplanes. Delta Airlines had MD-88s, which were 30, 35 years old that we were flying. The MD-88 was the most reliable airplane that we could ever put on the schedule because we knew everything that could have gone wrong with it. And Delta also has the ability to manufacture any part that's needed for that airplane. So this is where the contractual relationships with different vendors and the OEM come in. We had contractual relationships to where if we sent a request for a part to a vendor and they weren't able to supply that part within a certain amount of time, whatever that time was at the time the request came through, they had to give their intellectual property drawings to Delta Airlines so Delta can manufacture one part to satisfy that need. Hmm. We couldn't sell it, we couldn't do it, but we could manufacture the part. But by doing that, we now knew with the MD-88 exactly what could go wrong. And we had the what if parts all over the place, uh, you know, on the shelf ready to go. That was, that was needed if we needed to. The worst, airplane we had for reliability was the brand new airplane, the A220, which was Airbus's um, when they bought Bombardier's version of the airplane. Long story around that, but that was the worst airplane. It was a bunch of computers that took about 45 minutes to start up in the first place because they all had to start in a certain sequence. And if we had no idea what could break on that plane. So it was always a reliability issue. So the ones that are the oldest should be the best reliable airplanes you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, older aircraft just go back to those fundamentals. You know, it's, you know, basic machinery, basic mechanics, you know, looking at like Airbus aircraft, I mean, the whole thing's a computer and to your point. And, you know, I asked my dad, you know, which do you prefer? Would you prefer an older Boeing aircraft or a new Airbus? But he's like, any day of the week, I'd fly a Boeing aircraft. I, I would prefer yeah, an older one at that. I don't want to be flying a computer because there's a lot there's a lot of risk there. And it also detracts from the skill set of pilots because they, they're um, looking in the cockpit when they need to be looking outside the cockpit. That's another thing my dad uh, rants about all the time is, you know, pilots are more worried about looking at the HUD or they're more looking, uh, more worried about looking at their instruments versus looking at what's out there. That's what his mentors always taught him when he was a young pilot in the you know 60s, 70s, and 80s. So good stuff. I was once on, I was once on a maintenance test flight where we were testing out an autopilot system on a 737, and I'm sitting in the jump seat right behind the two pilots, and they're coming in on the runway in the left-hand runway, and the control tower comes across and says, uh, "You can't land on the left. You got to go to the right-hand runway." And the the co-pilot the junior had the airplane. So he looks down and starts typing in frantically into his flight management computer. And the pilot just looked at him an old timer said, what in the heck are you doing? He grabs a stick (laughs) there. You're on the runway. That's (laughs) that sounds almost identical to some stories that my dad has told me just because there'll be a first officer in the, in the right seat, just plugging away. And he's like, just, just fly the, fly the airplane. Like that's, you're an, you're a pilot. Just fly it. There's a yoke there for a reason. But um, that that's that's good stuff. Um, what else can Delta equip the Air Force with to be a more efficient organization? As we um, 
as we try and equip our maintainers to accomplish the mission of keeping jets in the sky, putting bombs on target, and winning wars. So the other piece, as far as the fundamentals go, I'll just go into that, is when a maintainer is doing his job, you need to be fully supportable. You don't want the administrative burden on them. So what we always did was made sure the demand signal for what was needed to support that visit was in the system as soon as possible. So 365 days in advance, we would schedule a maintenance event. The materials people would see that in the system and they would load up the required material into the virtual shopping cart, we call it. Think of the Amazon. So when you buy something on Amazon, you throw something in your cart and it can sit there for months. But you, what you don't know is behind the scenes, Amazon is actually moving that part to a logistics center closer to you in anticipation of you hitting the buy button. But when you hit the buy button, the part is then delivered to you and that's when the money changes hands. But the visibility that you want it is always there. So that's the concept we came up with at Delta Airlines. When we loaded the maintenance event, the materials people behind the scenes would move logistically the stuff to a logistics center closer to you. And it would be available when the event was supposed to take place. So seven days before the event was supposed to take place, that's when everything started happening automatically. And by automatically, I mean the system would automatically order all the material and will coordinate it and send it to the execution point where there somebody would sit down and get it ready for the supportable supportability of the visit. It's a little different by automating this stuff. No one hard to, had to hard type all these numbers for parts and things and tools and people and all into a system. Just by scheduling the work card, the single source of truth to the tail number in advance, the system automatically coordinated everything. If it wasn't able to coordinate, it would spit out an exception. That's where the people would start working is the exceptions, because now they're only focusing on the problem instead of being occupied with the mundane routine work, they were able to fix the problem quicker. And by doing that, we actually removed about 80% of the workload from the individual office people and from the front line, only 20% of were it's the standard 80-20 rule. About 20% of the information was the exception that needed some direct interaction or, or action against it. The other thing we did was we tried as much to do everything in a scheduled manner so it was fully supportable. If we found a problem, we would do our best to try to defer that problem for three to 10 days. Once we did that, three or 10 days later, that item is now scheduled and everybody knew about it, and it should be supportable. Instead of having the plane sit there for three days waiting on a part, we would let it fly, letting the redundant systems on the airplane maintain themselves. And then when it came in three days later, it's fully supportable with the part, you hit it. You hit it with the mechanics and NASCAR crew and you get it done and get it back out. That was the key. Because we're not here to optimize maintenance, we're here to optimize the flying schedule and have maintenance support that. And that's where the big buying shift comes in. Mm -hmm. what, what I think is really interesting, you talked about the Amazon cart concept as to something sitting in the Amazon cart, and then you know AI kind of takes over, that automation takes over, and that predictive 
uh, analytics is put into action. At the genesis of that, uh, I recently read the book One Click, and it talks, and it's a book about Amazon and the the foundations of of the business, and talks specifically about the the cart function and how they used to kick uh, if if uh, uh, something wasn't purchased within the cart they would boot the the product out of the cart and then one time a customer wrote in and said i loaded up like 25 or i don't know how many things were in that cart it's like i left them there i was waiting to purchase them just at the right time and he i mean he sent an angry email to to jeff bezos about it so after that since he is so customer centric and and focused um they uh, changed the function of um, taking the products out of the cart to keeping them in the cart. And then it sounds like now at this point, from what you're saying, now they use that function to their advantage, right? So they listened to the end user, they listened to the customer, and this has led to a, a string of events that has now uh, increased efficiencies in their business and also increased efficiencies across other industries as well because they listened to the person that was using their product. And then also ties into earlier in the conversation as to getting feedback directly from maintainers and the, and the benefit of that as well. So the other piece of that is if somebody orders a valve in the system or a valve is needed to support a maintenance event, we know that if you order this valve, you need four screws and two packings. They don't need to order the four screws and two packings. The system pops a screen up to the maintainer if he's ordering it fresh, or it will automatically order it as attaching hardware. And they don't even have to think about it. But it's not a kit. A physical kit is not what that is. They're individual piece parts that are ordered individually and shipped individually to the execution point so that it's fully visible to the system that that part is coming not a kit, a box with a bunch of parts in it under a different part number, and you have no idea what's in there because somebody might have taken it. Mm -hmm. So we completely removed physical kits and everything was individual piece parts shipped to the individual location. So at Amazon, when you order a part at the bottom, it has a little thing. People who've ordered this have also ordered these other things. And they think that's an automated process. It might be automated now. Originally, it, it wasn't. It's what's called mechanical Turks. If you ever heard of a mechanical Turk, you can look it up and see, but people would actually go in to Amazon and Amazon would have a list of products and they say, associate this product to this product, yes or no. And they would hit yes. And Amazon would pay him three cents. And they would go to the next one. Yes. And Amazon would pay him three cents. This was a job, but you were paid on how much volume you processed. And people were making the connections and it's called a mechanical Turk because of the old fortune telling machines where the Turkish person was sitting there and handed. There's actually a person in the background originally that did that kind of stuff or played chess. So uh, that's where the mechanical Turk term came from. So we did that at Delta. Mm -hmm. If you do this inspection, this part may fall out. So if you do this inspection, you may need this part. And oh, if you order the valve, the two packings and four screws are coming along with it. Interesting. And that, uh, you want to dig into 
the IDFK project, you know, Pathfinder that uh, you and, and Tesseract have been collaborating on and, and spearheading uh, for a while now. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of that, what you just mentioned are, is, the, you know, the, the foundations of that, that initiative. Uh, you can want to talk some of those details, like uh, working with the C5 um, and, and like why you chose the, the C5 uh, platform and, and how the Air Force is working hand in hand with uh, GTRI and, and Delta um, and, and the role you play in making this all happen. As you, as we see how the airlines can support um the Air Force. It's long conversation has a lot of tentacles, so I'll try to keep it short. All right. uh, hey, we, we got all day. So, so <laughs> inspection development framework is what we're talking about. How the inspections are actually developed and framed into the system. This term came out of the strategic sustainment sprint that was conducted in the Pentagon, where the Pentagon had a bunch of 06 folks and uh, other folks in the Air Force come down and for 60 days went through a different process of how to look at things. So we told them Delta's process and they adapted it into the Air Force and called it inspection development framework. So where it comes from is the Air Force for the C-5 currently has four basic maintenance checks. The home station check at 160 day interval, the min, uh, minor ISO, the major ISO and the PDM, which is at an eight year interval. Those four checks have all the maintenance tasks right now. There aren't really a lot that hang out there by themselves. Compare that to Delta Airlines, where we have a heavy check that's done, if you do the same equivalent in eight years, which is 35 days in length. The PDM for the Air Force is about 365 days for the C-5. The major minor ISOs are equivalent to a C check in Delta Airlines, which is average about 12 to 14 days of downtime. The major minor ISO in the Air Force, uh, 56 days uh, is about for the major at least. And the home station check is a three to five day visit at Delta. We do those on overnight visits. Every other maintenance task that still is required to be done is done in ground opportunities when the aircraft is not scheduled to fly. We call them eight to 10 hour blocks of time. So if the plane's not flying, it's on the ground anyway, you break into it and you do a maintenance task. 45 minutes, you put it back together, it's ready to go. That task is now done. Uh, in the Air Force with the C-5, if you were to take the average days of scheduled downtime for maintenance over an eight-year PDM cycle and average that out for 52 airplanes in the C-5 world, that comes out to 71 days of guaranteed maintenance downtime, about 80% MC. Guaranteed, right off the bat, before you even do anything else, on average. Delta Airlines, you take the same concept, same mathematics, it comes up to 21 days of guaranteed maintenance downtime over an eight-year period per airplane. Uh, it's the same size, size, style of airplane. That's a 50-day difference. So 50 days of the difference, if you were to give that back to the Air Force, times 52 airplanes, Divided by 365 days in a year gives you seven airframes additional to the flying schedule just by making this change. So seven additional C5s can be available by making this kind of an inspection development framework, how you schedule the maintenance. Don't put it in your four buckets. Break it up so it can be done on overnight visits. 
And that difference, because every day the plane is scheduled, guaranteed to be out of service is a day you can't fly it. And every day you can't fly it is another airframe out of the system. So by making this one change, you can actually improve the utility or availability potential uh, flyability of the airplane based on mission capability. Every time a C-5 can't make a mission, they have to put three C-17s on the flight. Three C-17s cost about a million extra dollars because you got the extra crews, you got the extra fuel, you got everything coming together to make three C-17s fly that one mission of a C-5 could have done. So that's where the money savings comes in. The adaptability of this is um, if the C-5 has better utility, it will get more aircraft scheduled missions. Right now, the field doesn't see that because they're stopped before they even hit the field because the people above are saying the airplane can't do it, can't make it. Well, there are more missions available if the airplane had better utility and there was trust in that number. So that's kind of the process around that, why we're looking at the C-5. The other reason why is the C-5 office down in Robbins Air Force Base in uh, Warner Robbins, Georgia, uh, paid for the study. So that's where it came from. <laughs> that's also convenient. <laughs> also convenient. Uh, and the mission of how a C-5 flies, you load it, you fly it to its destination, you unload is very similar to a commercial airline. You load it, you fly it to its destination, you unload it. So the, the mission yeah. profile is about the same. I'd also like you to reiterate, it's the age of the aircraft, the type of aircraft, it doesn't matter as much as the methodology that you set in place and the tools that you leverage in order to make this mission possible in order to increase these efficiencies. Yeah, and it's understanding where the failure points are. My brother has a 1963 TR3. The thing works great. It's so reliable. It's a lot better than that car I have down there that was built two years ago mm -hmm. it, that has a lot of computers in it. So it, you have to understand the me fundamental mechanical systems in order to make sure that you can maintain them. And that's the key is the older airplanes should be known by now. How many times have you worked a work card and you're starting to get into it? You go, Every time I come to this step, the same problem happens and nothing ever changes. Imagine if you could just pick up a phone. Hey, I'm on step five of this work card and it always works this way and it's always broken. Gets yeah, corrected. Yes, absolutely. And, and the, the, bureaucrat the bureaucratic processes as to getting, uh, whether it's a 107, you know, or, or whatever form you utilize to change, um, you know, parts or approvals and, and TO changes, um, you know, for those exceptions. And it's a, you know, it's a process. I mean, sometimes you can't wait a week, um, you know, because if you're trying to maintain um, readiness levels, and sometimes you can't wait a week to get a jet in the sky. You know, think of, you know, people, I and mean, we were talking about AMC, you know, uh, and we talked a little bit about, you know, global strike with, you know, B-52s, but also with fighters. Like, hey, so we need to, we need these jets in the sky. Doesn't matter what type of airframe it is. All of this is applicable um, to accomplishing our mission set. Um, so I think, I think it's wonderful uh, what you're accomplishing. Yeah comes down to supporting the mission. So the other thing that we, like I said, the 1-800 number on the top of the work card, um, the engineering group, if it's a significant item, you can call the engineer directly. There's a 24 hour engineering group that's always there. 
whoever answers the phone, it's like 20 people that are sitting there. Whoever answers the phone is responsible for that item. Wow. So the phone rings a couple of times. But <laughs> so how do you filter? Well, how does so there, there's got to be a little bit of a balance then. Uh, you don't want the phone ringing like too off the hook for like maybe like I mean, there's got to be some unreasonable, you know, requests there. You know, like whenever they say, you know, you're, you're like in a meeting and, and like the CEO asks like or, or a VP asks like, so what questions do you have? Like, you know, what do you got for me? And then someone says, I don't like the bathroom break policy or I don't like, you know, I, I need a new chair for my desk. I was like, maybe that wasn't the appropriate question in that forum. Maybe that you could have gone through some different channels. Maybe you could ask your supervisor instead of jumping completely up the chain of command. How, how do you balance that when it comes to that that uh, funnel of feedback? You're always going to get that when you open the channels. Um, mm -hmm. they, and it depends on the person that's asking the question. Sometimes just a manager talking to them on the side is all that's needed. Sometimes you have to call them out in front of everybody else. Why did you waste our time talking about that? Mm -hmm. You could have just gone to your manager. So it depends on the person. You have to understand their personality. Yeah, 100%. Like you see that in, you know, in the Air Force, like commander's calls. And you know everyone uh, rags on the guy who the commander's like, hey, what questions do you guys have? And then they ask them. You know, you know what might be perceived as a silly question, but it's important to that individual, right? Or that person mm -hmm. might be off base. Um, it's, um, but it's always amusing, nonetheless. So, <laughs> I'll get back to one more point. Okay. So the ASPO twenty two form, which is used in the Air Force to change TOs, goes through five levels of approval before it even leaves the field. Mm -hmm. There's no trust. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's key. That's what I wanted to get to is trust. You have to have trust. And yes, people will make mistakes. Uh, in But you're just talking to an engineer. Uh, what's the big deal? You talk to an engineer, you waste five minutes of his time. Okay. Understood. But next time it might be the engineer says, wow, that's a life issue that we need to take care of. And it got to him immediately. Mm -hmm. So you have to have trust. And the, the second thing I'm really seeing right now, and you may uh, want to talk to this a little bit is, is the failure to take responsibility for issues, for changes. This is a change. This is a huge change to the Air Force. And in order to do this, you have to have somebody who wants to take responsibility for making that change. If something goes wrong, Whoever did that is going to be in big trouble. Just the culture of the Air Force. But they didn't start their day waking up saying, I'm going to do it to them today. I'm going to fail. You know, it's things happen. That's okay. What did this you say that's, well, I, so I got to, I got to bring up here. I mean, what did you say that's most organizations though? Like just, to, just generally speaking, that is seen in any organization, right? Like, you know, I can say from my corporate America experience and, and my military experience that I, I've seen that happen at all different levels of leadership. But as soon as something goes right, hey, let's write, you know, let's write a press release on this. Let's do a photo op on this. Um, let's uh, let's give out a bonus. Let's hand out some coins. You know, we you know, we won the big one here. But if it goes wrong. Hold up. Who you know, what heads are rolling here or is my job on the line? Am I going to be promoted to be demoted? 
uh, that that's uh, you know definitely a, a rational fear when it comes to, like these major cultural shifts. And then also another thing to keep in mind is when you get to whether we're talking about a, a VP, a CEO, or a base commander or a wing commander, it's like they've been inculcated in a culture for decades. Like that, they're you know uh, some people that's what they know and that's what they've seen, uh, you know. It, you know, develop through their career and they have their own vision and paradigm of, of reality and what works and what doesn't work. So, um, you know, with, with that being said, they, they think, I say they as in, you know, senior leaders who have, you know, trust and confidence in their ability um, might see success differently than other people see success, right? And, um, and yeah, they might be hesitant to seeing that the, you know, oh, they might think something's a buzzword. They might say like, oh, AI, Predictive maintenance—that that's just a buzzword right now, um, but it's actually it's actually a game changer, and um, uh, and and that's where I think that bottom-up uh, growth and innovation, like we see, you know, here in in at this program in, in Tesseract and what we're trying to build, is important to like you know also build trust and confidence from the top, and trust and confidence from the bottom, and meet in the middle, and come to a mutual understanding that. Um, you know, we are going to, we, while we might fail, um, it is going to send us in the right direction and we're going to learn from this and grow from this. Uh, so that, that would be my, my caveat there is to. I agree totally. And I didn't mean to be disrespectful in any way because it happened at Delta airlines as well, but it's fail fast, fail forward. Uh, you weren't so, being disrespectful at all. I, I wasn't, I wasn't implying that or, or insisting that. And I, I hope I wasn't, I, I just wanted to, to add to the, to the conversation as in, uh, I think, uh, particularly when you talk to airmen or, you know, even at, you know, at civilian companies, sometimes there is, they, you know, they look to the top and they're like, ah, oh, they're not listening. They're not listening. And sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. And so there's absolute justification to, um, to your point for sure. So when we implemented this at Delta airlines, um, originally we never got any top leadership discussion. We just started doing it. We started just doing the fundamentals because people looked at us and said, you are the experts in this area. You are the ones who write the work instructions. You are the ones that maintain the material. So we would started to go back and forth saying, how can we make this better? Because when people look at us, they say, you are the experts. You should know exactly how to do your job. And the system that we used is called Scepter. It was built in 1974. It's on an AS400 machine. It uses Fortran as its language. We didn't go to new IT. We figured out how we can adapt this in the Scepter system as it's currently written. We didn't have to recode anything. That was the other key. That's the system that we were using. That's the system we need to know and understand. So when I look at the Air Force and I see GO81, which actually is a better system. One of the people in my planning group had 21 years as an Air Force scheduler. And, and he came to Delta Airlines. He was working in my group for six years when this whole project kicked off in 2018. And I was talking to him and I said, Anthony, when you look at this, what do you think? And he goes, man, I wish we at Delta Airlines had GO81. It's such a better system. Huh. So when you look at that, your system can do everything that we need it to do. But you have people that don't understand the system as detailed as they should, but they're the experts in it because that's their job. So people taking time to learn how to do their job well and how to do it. Don't worry about the other guy. Don't worry about the materials guy. We'll give him the information. The materials guy will order whatever we tell him to order. 
He doesn't know a widget from a screw, but he knows all he knows is part numbers. And originally the material group divided up their workload by material numbers, part numbers. Um, they will order exactly what you tell them to order. And if you give them six months to order it, they'll get it to you on time. But at the time we were adopting all of this, the material people always got the dirty end of the stick because by the time they got the order, it was already two days late. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's what crazy. we try to get away from. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the piece we're trying to do with the Air Force is how can we get the demand signal out there faster so that the people who do the job can do it well without any implications? Mm -hmm. Awesome. And so this Pathfinder has been running now uh, since 2018, since you started working with Tesseract? Or? This is the third contract iteration. So in April of this year, 2020, April of 2020, I started with Georgia Tech doing the same project, Te Tesseract project, but moved over to a different organization through academia. Um, now we're in the execution phase. We've, we're through talking about how this is going to work. We're through showing people that it, the efficiencies are there. Now we're trying to execute to see what will happen when we make the change. Mm -hmm. That's why we're starting with the home station check. It's a 160 day interval. There's two and a half of them during the year that have to be completed on a C5. There's about 135 maintenance tasks that have to be completed within the home station check. All the maintenance was bundled into that 160 day item. Some of those intervals are actually 240 days but there's no 240 day maintenance check. So they pulled it back and did it at 160. So what we're trying to do is decompose the HSC into the individual tasks. Do that work over a course of time, which is a 20 day window. So the date the HSC is scheduled, if you look at the TO it says you can do it within a plus or minus 10 days of that schedule date. So there's a 20 day window right there for you to do 134 tasks. Do it in between the flying schedule. The plane flies, hits the ground. It's going to be on the ground for six hours. Do four or five cards. First, you have to understand what the supportability piece is for those cards. And working with the flying schedule people to understand when it's going to be down so you can do those. And then when the whole HSC tasks are done, sign it off. But it still was never taken out of the flying schedule for a guaranteed number of days. So if we're able to do this for the complete HSC without impacting the flying operation, we're actually giving back for Travis Air Force Base or Dover Air Force Base, which have about 18 possessed airplanes or so, 15 to 18 possessed airplanes, depending on what's at depot. Um, we're actually giving back about 180 extra calendar days of potential flying availability just by making that one change. How are airmen reset? So you've been working with airmen at, at Travis Air Force Base. Or did I interrupt you? Were you going to finish your thought there? I'm yeah, sorry. At, at Travis and Dover, correct. Um, so at Travis and Dover, um, you started working with these airmen now. Like you're, you have boots on the ground. Airmen are being introduced to this concept. What are their initial thoughts? What has been the feedback you have received uh, from these airmen and um how are you building on that right now as this project continues or this pathfinder continues rather? And, and this is the beautiful part is when we finally get down and start talking about it and executing on it, everybody wants to succeed. If you give somebody a job, you give them all the parts they need, the time to do it, the tooling they need, you give them everything they need to make it work. 
they're going to go great. This is fantastic. We've been asking for this for years. That's where we are right now. The front line loves it. They are actually, because you have a 20 day window to do work, seeing a little bit more time for them to support the item because tomorrow we're going to do these two work cards that need this stuff. Let me make sure that's lined up before the plane comes in. Two days from now, we're going to be doing this and they can see it coming, but it all comes from the schedule and planning piece. And that's the key, the schedule and planning piece. The pro supers need to talk to the flight people to figure out when the plane's scheduled to fly. You don't want to impact the flying schedule. You want to change the maintenance to fit into the flying schedule that they have. And right now we're just working with local flying. So when the plane's available to fly, make it a local. But if you were to use one of these HSC planes for your local flying, for instance, in Dover, you fly locals on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can do maintenance on Tuesdays, Thursdays, or the weekend. By doing that, you're not impacting the local flying airplane. So a worldwide capable airplane is not being held back for a local flying ability. So you're freeing up another worldwide plane. The front line sees this and they go, this is fantastic. This is what we've been needing. And, and it's, it's very encouraging. Amazing. Coming to a similar point in Delta's history as to seeing where those cancellations needed to be canceled, right? And um, we're starting that paradigm shift, uh, you know, with your help and uh, and, and your driving focus, you know, with on this Pathfinder. So your your service and your patriotism uh, to to drive this effort is uh, now I I respect I mean I I respect you so much for the time that you've you've taken and the effort you've taken uh, to make our country a safer uh, a safer place and in, in the Air Force a more efficient fighting force I mean it's just I can't say it enough like thank you so much. It's my pleasure. America is the greatest country in the world. We need to make sure that everybody is working to the best of their ability in it. Yeah, you are. You are a true patriot, sir. Really, really appreciate your time today. Uh, really appreciate uh, you know, going over everything from Delta's culture to your background and how the airlines are a lot more similar to the Air Force than people like to think. And there's a lot that we can learn from the airlines. And it's not so much, oh, well, it, the Air Force has a bunch of old aircraft and it's a inefficient operation because of government bureaucracy. No, like we can, we can change things. Change is possible and change is happening. And, and the key is you don't have to do exactly what the airlines do. You need to see what they do, use their ideas and their innovation to translate that into how the Air Force works to make it work in the Air Force the way it should. And focus on the fundamentals because innovation is focus. So That's right. Good stuff. Yeah, you know, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and I hope we get to meet again soon as IDFK continues to develop and we can you know, maybe do a, a touch point episode on, on how it continues to uh, make uh, waves across the Air Force, not just with the C-5, but other weapon systems as well. Well, so. thank you, Matt. And you make it 1% better today, okay? Every day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so let's keep on innovating.
Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseractaf.com.